Amen. Go ahead and be seated, church. This morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles, and I know the screen says uh, James chapter 1. I'm going to read James chapter 1, verse number 1 for you, but I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, okay? Turn with me to Acts chapter 24. Here's where we're going. Over the next several weeks, the next couple of months, we're going to be going through a journey verse by verse through the book of James. And so I want to look at verse number one just very, very briefly to lay the foundation for what we're going to be discussing this morning. So as you find your way to Acts chapter 24, listen as I read to you James chapter one, verse number one. There it says, James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So a couple of things that we've learned from that very first verse. We, we learn who wrote the letter, and we know that is James. James is the actual half-brother of our Lord and Savior. So we know the author of this letter, and then we know the audience to which he wrote the letter to. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered in dispersion. In other words, James wrote this letter to a group of believers who were scattered about as a result of persecution. So this is a letter written to believers in Christ. Now I say that because this is of utmost importance for us in order to gain everything that we possibly can over this message series. We need to make sure we are in the right relationship with God before we begin to look at what his letter has to say to us as believers. In other words, uh, the book of James is going to tell us how we should be living our lives as a Christ follower. It is, uh, it's a book that says, because you're a believer, then these things should be in place in your lives. And we're going to unpack all of those things. I don't want us to get confused with James. James is not a book about how to receive salvation. James is a book that says, because you are saved, then you should live like this. And so in order for us to get the most out of it, I want to make sure that we all understand our relationship with God. And so if you're going to get the most out of this series, that you need to have a relationship with God that is based upon faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can have that is through a process of repentance. And so this morning, our message is simply a message to repent. And that word repent and the concept of repentance is not very well received, nor is it very well encouraged these days. It seems as though there aren't a lot of messages that are directing, calling for people to repent. While it might be true that repentance is missing from a lot of sermons that are being preached today across our nation, I want to assure you that the message of repent is not removed from God's Word. 969 times the Bible calls us to repent. 969 times. Noah preached repentance to his generation. They failed to repent, and they all died. Jonah preached repentance, the message of repentance, to his enemies. They listened to his message. They repented, and therefore 
they lived. Jesus, our Lord, He even preached repentance. In fact, the very first sermon that Jesus preached was the Sermon on Repentance. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 17, it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the very first message that we have of our Lord is a message of repentance. The last message that we have of Jesus is not the Great Commission, although we have a tendency to think that that was his last message. The last message, the last sermon that we have from Jesus was actually given from Jesus through John the Apostle. And it's recorded in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, verse number 19, Jesus tells us, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So the first and last message our Lord and Savior ever declared unto us was a message to repent. This morning, I hope to give us a very clear picture of what true biblical repentance is all about. And so as we begin, I want you to understand that repentance is much more than simply having a conviction of sin. It is very possible for us to be convicted of our sin and not yet experience true biblical repentance. I want to show you that case in Scripture. So look in Acts chapter 24. Here I want to show you what happens to an individual by the name of Felix. Felix has the gospel preached to him and he falls under conviction. Notice down in verse number 24. Paul is preaching to Felix and says, After some days, Felix... Now, Felix was a, was a politician. He was a, a leader in the government. And so after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul, and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So begin. Paul is preaching the gospel to Felix. Okay, and it says, And as he, that is, talking about Paul, as Paul reasoned of righteousness and self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Some of your translations might say uh, Felix was afraid, or even Felix was terrified. All of them are appropriate. And this is powerful, because I, I believe that if we realize that we are sinful, and then we realize just how holy and righteous God is, and if we fully understand what our sin deserves and how we're deser deserving of punishment from God, eternal separation from Him, I believe if, that, if we fully understood all of that, then we too, like Felix, would be afraid, terrified. And, and so it, it goes on to say, okay, so Felix was alarmed, and he said, go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will sum, summon you. Basically, when, when, when Felix fell under the conviction over his sin, and he was terrified of his standing before holy and righteous God, Felix responded with, um, now's not a good time. Why, why don't you give me some time to think about it, and when I'm ready to think about it or talk about it, then we can deal with it later in the future. What's so tragic is, so far as history records and reports, it never tells us if Felix ever found that convenient time. 
How tragic to be under the weight of conviction over sin and yet still refuse to deal with the sin. Here's the thing, Felix isn't alone. In fact, Scripture is filled with individuals who fall under the conviction of sin and yet never repent. Scripture is filled with individuals who not only fall under the conviction of sin, they even go as far as to confess sin and not repent. This morning I want you to understand that uh, it is possible to be convicted of sin and even to confess sin and still yet never experience biblical, true repentance. And before I give you a definition and an example of what true biblical repentance looks like and and, and how it it gets played out in our lives, I want to spend a little bit of time going on a journey with you of giving you some examples of false uh, repentance. Uh, Repentance that, that just wasn't complete was insufficient, if you will. And so in order to do that, right, I I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. This is not going to be on the screen. I need you to see it in in your Bibles that are right there in your laps. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 9. This first type of false repentance or, or false confession is from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh offers what I would call a crisis confession. If you're following along in our app on, on, for the church in the sermon notes, then, then Pharaoh offers a crisis confession. Exodus chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 22. It says that the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran, ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained the hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been seen in all of the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Verse number 25, it says that the hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the lands of Egypt, uh, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Now, Now watch verse number 27. Then Pharaoh said and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now now that's a good confession. Pharaoh says, I've sinned. God is in the right, and we are in the wrong. So, So Pharaoh confesses, I have sinned, and it's in the midst of a time when the thunder was rolling, that the hail was, was falling, the lightning was, was flashing, and then Pharaoh says, oh, I have sinned. But now go down to verse number 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and he hardened his heart. He and his servants. 
his so-called repentance that was born in the storm suddenly dies in the calm. And for many of us today, I'm afraid that this is too much familiar with who we are. We experience a crisis in our life. We cry out to God, make certain statements to God about God, and yet when the crisis goes away, it's as though we return back to the very things that we were doing before the crisis occurs in our life. I want you to understand that repentance is much more than a confession of sin. And so now, turn with me, go to the right, get to uh, Numbers chapter 22. We see the crisis confession of Pharaoh, and that was insignificant because it didn't lead to true biblical repentance. In Numbers chapter 22, we're going to see the individual by the name of Balaam. Balaam makes the same kind of confession. At least he uses the same words. He, he clearly says, I have sinned. Look in Numbers chapter 22, verse number 34. It says, then, then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I, I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. Now real quick, you got to understand, who is Balaam? Well, Balaam was a prophet. And in this particular situation, Balaam was a prophet who was summoned by a king. Who, who The king Balak is his name. He summoned uh, the prophet because he wanted the prophet to come because King Balak was in fear of the number of Israelites that were surrounding him. And so in fear, he summons the prophet because he wants the prophet to come and to speak a curse on the Israelites. And so... Uh, the, the, the story goes that, that when um, Balaam hears of this request, he says, well, let me, give me a night. Let me, let me pray about it, and I'll tell you what the Lord has to tell me in, in the next day. And, and so the Lord gives them the instructions, don't go. Don't do this. And so Balaam sends word. He says, I can't do it. And, and then King Balak says, oh, no, come on. We really need you. And he offers them a great amount of, of wealth to be able to come and to speak these curses upon the people. And, and then again, Balaam's like, oh, give me a night, and then I'll let you know what the, the Lord has to say to me. And ultimately, Balaam's answer to it all was, hey, I can only speak what the Lord tells me to speak. Although you're offering me uh, a great sum of money to bring about a curse, I'm not going to violate that. Okay, I'm only going to speak what the Lord tells me to speak. I think Balaam is an interesting individual. Because when, when Balaam uh, speaks uh, spiritually, if you will, he has a, a voice of an angel. But when he's uh, dealing underneath the desk, man, he has a heart of the devil. And so Balaam, he ends up going. He, he makes his way to the king. And he knows what the king wants from him. And he knows what the king is willing to offer him. And on his way to go see the king of King Bala, uh, God intervenes and interrupts his plan. Balaam was riding on a donkey, and his donkey collapsed underneath him. In fact, uh, the donkey crushes uh, Balaam's foot up against the wall, which is interesting because that dumb donkey had more spiritual insight uh, than the prophet did himself. And so now, now we're at the point, on Balaam's on this journey. Now, now Balaam's about to see what his donkey had seen. Look, look back at verse number 31. 
It says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his uh, drawn, drawn sword in hand. And he bowed down and he fell on his face. So Balaam saw the angel of God. He saw the angel of God have a sword that is drawn out against him. And then the angel spoke to him. Look at verse 33. And the angel speaking says, The donkey saw me, and he turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Which brings us back to verse number 34. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. So here's a man that says, yes, I have sinned. But as far as we can tell, and uh, by looking at his actions following this, it appears that he doesn't experience true repentance. Now, while Balaam refuses to speak a curse on the people on three separate occasions, he, he, he honored God in that. Well, once Balaam returns home, he's still trying to figure out how he can make a profit for his services to the king. And, and so what he ends up doing, since he couldn't curse Israel directly, then he comes up with the plan for the Israelites to bring upon a curse upon themselves. And he shares that plan with King Balaam. And so uh, ba Balaam offers nothing else than a, a hypocritical confession. He says the right words, but his actions betray what his words confessed. And so we have to be careful now. We, now we have two examples already. Pharaoh says, I have sinned. Balaam says, I have sinned. Both of them make a confession in the midst of their crisis. And then there's another example. His name's Saul. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Oh, you started off strong turning your Bibles. Don't give up on me now. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I want you to see this for yourselves. It would have been easy for me to put all of this on the screen so that you could just sit there and watch it, but that wouldn't be helpful for you. You need to be in your Word familiar with it, looking at it, marking it up. So are you there, 1 Samuel chapter 15? Is anyone there, 1 Samuel chapter 15? Cool. Here we're going to see the example of Saul. And Saul offers up what I would call a half-hearted confession. Remember, Saul was the king. Uh, he was the leader of the nation of Israel. And God commanded him through the prophet Samuel to do certain things. And Saul consistently failed to do certain things that God called him to do. And notice in verse number 24 of chapter 15, it says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Now that's interesting, right? <laughs> Pharaoh says, I have sinned. Balaam says, I have sinned. Saul just said, I have sinned. And he goes on to say, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. Because, now listen to this. He says, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So, so he sinned because he feared the people and obeyed their voice. By him saying he feared the people and obeyed their voice, it is the equivalent of saying, I chose to do the politically correct thing instead of paying respect to the biblically correct thing. 
And so it goes on to say in verse number 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Now what's happening here? You have Saul, the king, who's saying that he has sinned, but yet he never truly repents of his sin. You go, go to verse number 35. Notice what it says. Verse number 35 says that Samuel did not see Saul until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. Now, now here's Saul who offers up a confession of his sin, but when he confesses his sin, he wraps it up in an excuse. He, he wraps it up with a, a rationale. Like go back to verse number 19. Look at verse number 19. It says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And then here goes the rationale. Here goes the excuse. Verse 21, but the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So instead of taking ownership of his, his failure to follow the Lord's instruction, instead of taking ownership over his lack of leadership over the, the, the people of Israel, Saul tries to justify his actions. And so what we're left with is a, a confession with an excuse. It's a confession that's all tied up with a rationale. Now, it is because I love you that I'm about to make this next statement. And I hope that you hear it, and I hope that you receive it into your life. May you know that God longs to forgive you of your sins. But may you also know that there's one thing the blood of Jesus will not cover and cleanse, and that is an excuse, a rationale. Your attempts to justify the sinful behavior that's in your life. After all, what Saul said sounds reasonable. It seemed sensible. It was logical, perhaps even economical. But all in all, it was still an excuse or a rationale for his disobedience to the Lord's instruction. My fear is that we're way too familiar with this type of confession today. It's, it's as though today we, we have an entire generation that, that will not accept their culpability of sin. Everyone has their excuse. Everyone has their rationale. It says, though, everyone has their own justification for the life they lead and the things that they do. So already these, these examples, we have a, a temporary confession of Pharaoh or the crisis confession that says, I have sinned. But that confession only lasted as long as the trouble was present in his life. And then you have uh, Balaam who offers the hypocritical confession 
he spoke certain words, but his actions revealed the fact that the words that were spoken weren't true for who he was or, or what he desired. And then we have the half-hearted confession of Saul the king. He says, I've sinned, but he also says, I've sinned, but it's not my fault. Here's my excuse. Here's my rationale for my sinful behavior. And then there's one more example I want to show you. Turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter 7. A couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday night, I, I gave a talk through Joshua chapter 7. I want you to, to see Achan in this story. Achan offers up what I would call a cornered confession. A cornered confession. To give you the background of chapter 7, you need to uh, begin to think about what happens in chapter 6 of Joshua. In, in chapter 6 of Joshua, the Lord hands Jericho over to the Israelites. And so the walls of Jericho come tumbling down in chapter 6. In fact, in chapter 6, verse number 16, this is prior to uh, Jericho falling. Verse number 16 in chapter 6, it says, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So everything is to be destroyed. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Verse 18, But you... Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Then in verse number 19, it says, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So clear instructions are given on what to do in chapter 6 when Jericho is destroyed. And so chapter 6 closes with the statement in verse number 27. It says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was all in all the land. And then you arrive in chapter 7, and things quickly go haywire in chapter 7. Uh, namely, chapter 7, they, uh, Joshua sends people to go into battle. They, they send out more spies, and they come back with a, a report that says, hey, this is going to be an easy victory. No need sending everyone. Just send a small uh, group of soldiers to go and to fight. And so Joshua, he does that. Interesting. Joshua never goes to the Lord for his instructions. He makes his plan on his own. So they send people into battle in chapter 7, there at the beginning, and the result of that battle is a defeat for the children of Israel. 36 soldiers die, and it says that the nation of Israel, their hearts melted in fear. In the midst of all of this, Joshua cries out to God, asking him, why would he bring them this far only to allow them to be defeated? Now look at verse number 10 of chapter 7. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. 
Notice what's happening. They disobeyed the instructions from chapter 6. Someone sinned. And because of their sin, they were bringing about the destruction for the nation of Israel. Had Joshua gone to the Lord in the first place, I'm fully convinced that the Lord would have said, I'm not with you in this battle, and here's the reason why. But he doesn't go to the Lord. He just takes matters into his own hand. And after taking matters into his own hand, dealing with defeat, dealing with the lives lost of 36 individuals, dealing now with a a massive group of people, probably 2 to 3 million individuals, who now their hearts were melting in fear, then Joshua turns to the Lord and cries out, why, why? And the Lord said, because someone didn't obey me. Someone took the devoted things for themselves. And then he, the Lord gives them some interesting instructions. And he said, hey, this is how it's going to play out. We're going to deal with this. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to bring all the clans before you. And clan by clan, and we're going to cast lots. And then determine on the results of those casting of the lots, one clan is going to be identified as being the guilty clan. And then I want you to take that clan and then separate them out from tribe to tribe within that clan. And then we're going to identify which tribe is the guilty tribe. And then you're going to take that tribe and you're going to separate that out household to household. And then you're going to cast lots again and we're going to figure out which household is the guilty household. When you get to that part after household to household, now we're going to go man to man until we find where the guilty party is. So we've gone from the the display of anywhere between two to three million individuals through this process of elimination, and we get all the way down to one individual. Look what in verse number 19. Verse number 19 says, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. It's the same pattern of sin for all of us. I saw something, I coveted it, I took it. And that's what he's saying. He says, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent uh, with the silver underneath. Here's what I want you to know. And I'll show this verse on the screen. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse number 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Make no mistake, what you cover, God will uncover. Not only that, what you uncover before the Lord, He can cover with His righteousness. And Achan had this idea that he could cover his sin. And so he took the things that belonged to the treasury of the Lord and he buried them in his tent. It was then when he finally after going through that systematic process of eliminating everyone, and it narrows down to him, it was then when he was cornered that he offers his confession. He's confessing because he's been caught in the sin. His confession isn't a confession of repentance. It was a confession of necessity. There was nothing else that he could do. He had to acknowledge and admit it. 
And that's not true repentance. So I have to give you examples of what true repentance doesn't look like. We realize that uh, repentance is more than just having a conviction of sin. Because Acts chapter 24, Felix was convicted. He was terrified of his standing before a holy and righteous God. So it's more than having a conviction of sin. Repentance is more than confessing sin. It's more than saying, I have sinned. It's more than acknowledging your way was right, my way is wrong. And I just gave you example after example. Pharaoh, Balaam, Saul, Achan, all of them confessed the words I have sinned. And so, repentance is more than a conviction of sin. It's more than a confession of sin. Now we get to the point, what is repentance? Well, repentance comes from a Greek word, metanoia. Metanoia. And here's the definition I would give you for true biblical repentance. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of action. Say that again. For those that are trying to write it down and those of you who are deciding, hmm, should I write this down? The answer is yes, you should. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of action. That's why it says in Luke chapter 3, verse number 8, to bear fruit in keeping with Repentance. To bear fruit. Your actions reveal that repentance has occurred. In Acts chapter 26, we're told that Paul declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. And then it says, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So here's the the truth nugget that you need to know. If repentance doesn't lead to a change of action in your life, you've not experienced true repentance. You've just been convicted of sin, perhaps even confessed sin. But if it's not leading to a change in who you are, what you do, what you desire, what you long for, then it's not true repentance. It's not enough. And so let me give you an example of what true biblical repentance looks like. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I know you're familiar with this story. I'll read through it real quick. Make a couple of observations. Then I'm done. It's the story of the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15, I'll start in verse number 11. And it says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing 
to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Real quick, the picture of true repentance. First of all, this son realized his desperate condition. It says in verse number 17 that he came to himself. So realizing his desperate condition, then notice he makes a mental determination to change the course of his life. Look at verse number 18. It says, I will arise and go to my father. So already he's had a change of mind and a change of heart. He realizes his desperate condition and he makes a change. He makes a plan. He makes the mental determination that things have to be different. And then he makes that decisive act, breaking away and going back. In verse number 20, it says, And he rose and came to his father. So realizing his desperate condition, making the mental determination to change the course of his actions. He makes a decisive act. It is a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of action. And then notice his mindset and his attitude in the whole process. He comes with absolute humility and he confesses his sin. Verse 21, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His genuine repentance brought about the restoration of a relationship. The only way that we can have a proper relationship with our Heavenly Father is through repentance. It is the acknowledgement of our sin. It is the confessing of that sin. It is turning to Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of our lives. And it is committing to live a life of faithful obedience to what His Word tells us to do and how His Word tells us to live. And I pray that each and every one of you have experienced true biblical repentance. My fear is that there are some in this room, even right now, who haven't experienced true repentance and quite frankly, aren't interested in true repentance. If that's you, Let me just share this little nugget of truth for you. Because I can assure you, the people in hell are very much interested in the concept of repentance. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 16, he tells us a story of a rich man who dies. And he dies without faith. And he's in a place of torment. And being in torment, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham. 
And he cries out to Abraham, and he asks Abraham, hey, Abraham, please send somebody to warn my brothers because I don't want them to die, and I don't want them to be here with me. In Luke chapter 16, it says in verse number 29, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I think it's sad that there appears to be more people that would be interested in repentance in hell than there are interested in repentance today. Why is that so sad? It's because those that are in hell, it's too late for them. They have no opportunity to repent. Their time is done. But for us today, while there's still time, there's still the opportunity to repent to confess your sin, to ask for forgiveness, to turn your life over to Jesus Christ and live a life of commitment and service unto him. So the question becomes, will you admit your guilt? Will you confess your sin? Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And not only that, will you commit to follow him for the rest of your life, to walk in faithful obedience to what he's called us to do. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. We'll be here at the front to talk with you, to pray with you, to encourage you, to help you. And know that in order for us to get the maximum out that we can through the study through the book of James, we've got to be in a relationship with our Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Have you repented? If not, Will you repent today? Let's pray. Father, help us to love you more than anything else. God, help us to love you more than anyone else. God, help us to fully commit our lives unto you. Make your spirit bring attention and awareness into our lives of the things that we do that are offensive to you. May we experience a conviction of sin that leads to a confession of sin that's followed by a change of action on our part. God, may each and every one of us bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In this moment, during this time, for whatever decision that needs to be made, I pray that we will choose the right thing today. Help us, Father. Be glorified in and through this all. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.